This presentation is from UX Australia 2018, held in Melbourne. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Hi everyone, hope you can hear me okay. I have some slides prepared. Okay, uh, so thank you all for, for coming today. I know you have a, you know, some choice of, of who you get to see today, so I assume the other two rooms are full. Uh, so I appreciate you coming to this one instead. Um, so I, I'm very excited to, to be here. I've actually not attended UX Australia before, so this is my first time being here and my first time speaking. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Seven out of ten. We'll, we'll improve on that over the course of the talk. Um, uh, and so, so yeah, so I, I was very excited when I found out that I was talking, and not only am I speaking here, but I'm one of the first talks uh, directly after the, the keynote speaker, and obviously uh, we had a very good keynote speaker. So, but I was so excited, I, I couldn't wait to, um, to tell my girlfriend that, you know, I was one of the first talks on the, the first day. And, and the, the, the great thing is she's always uh, very supportive of me, so, you know, she really, you know, put my, put my mind at ease. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, you can imagine, you can imagine my excitement. Um, now, I just want to quickly set the tone of what we're talking about today because ethical design is, is, is two really big, heavy words. Um, and we're going to be going through a few little different things. So um, firstly, we're just going to be uh, finding out um, why ethics is, is such an important topic that, that all of us are, are really discussing quite a lot these days. I mean, if you've been on the internet and you're a designer, you've probably read about ethical design. Um, we're also going to be looking at uh, dark UX um, and how people use certain designs and design patterns to, to change user behavior. Um, I've got some great examples as well of some tricky UX uh, that, uh, that you might have seen out in the wild that you can potentially relate to. Um, then we're, uh, we're going to see what uh, certain other um, designers or companies have maybe done that uh, they might potentially regret and, and what they could have done to avoid that, hopefully. Um, and lastly, we're going to uh, give you a great little conclusion that hopefully gives you a few things that you can take away from this talk and, and repeat elsewhere. Um, and if nothing else, I'll probably embarrass myself at some point, so if the conclusion sucks, you'll at least have a fun um, story. So, uh, before we, we get into the real heavy, meaty stuff, I just wanted to start with a quick warm-up. Everybody loves uh, a good warm-up. And uh, when I told my team at work that I, I wanted to start with like a bit of uh, a warm-up and a bit of audience participation, um, my, my research team kind of said, well, Chris, you should probably just make sure that that's something that people want to do. And I'm a bit notorious in my team for not doing any research. That's why I have UX researchers, so that I can just look at the pretty graphs at the end of it and not do any of the hard work. Um, but, you know, to do them a bit of a favor because you know they always help me out. I did do some research on audience participation and uh, this is what I found. Um, so there are two groups of people. There are people who enjoy audience participation and they're actual real life people. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I've, got a, I've actually got a great joke on this point as well um, and, and you all have to promise to laugh because I've tested it with a few people and it's about a 50-50 hit rate, right? So here we go. So, so hands up if you don't enjoy audience participation. A couple of hands up. I guess we found the oxymorons in the room. <laughs> yeah, that's about 50-50, yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay, so anyway, so who's heard of clickbait? Right? Yeah, almost everybody in this room has, has heard that term. Clickbait's a really common example of a UX pattern, a design pattern, that, that maybe subverts user expectation, right? I've got an example of clickbait here that I think we can all use as a bit of a, as a, bit of a, a starting point for this conversation. So here's my example. Man tries to hug a wild lion. You won't believe what happens next. So... <laughs> This is, a real, this is a real thing, by the way. Someone actually wrote this. Some uh, journalist uh, actually wrote this title. And um, th there's two things going on here that, that, that make this clickbait. The first thing is that, that first bit, man tries to hug a wild lion, right? Now, now, for most of us, I think if we saw a wild lion, 
uh, hugging it would be down the end of the list of, of things we'd like to do next, right? Um, I mean, I generally wouldn't hug a wild lion unless they were really sort of, you know, giving me those sort of come hither eyes that lions do sometimes. Um, but, but secondly, um, you won't believe what happens next. Well, well, actually, I think in most cases, I probably would believe what happens next because there's really only three reasonable scenarios, right? I mean, the first one is uh, the man gets mauled to death. I would believe that. I think that's very believable. The, the second one is less believable. Maybe the lion hugs back and reciprocates and actually appreciates the gesture. Okay, I, I wouldn't say it's unbelievable, but it's a bit less likely. Um, and then the third one, of course, is just the, the, the two exchange a, a hug and go their separate ways and, and no harm, no foul. Now, that one would actually be quite unbelievable, but um, I, I guess the point here is um, these, these lines aren't really accurate, are they? They're just, they're just there to kind of entice you and, and kind of give you a little bit of a, a tingling sensation that, that maybe you want to find out more. Now, I guarantee you that this article was very, very disappointing when I read it, and I think we've all been there, right? You get to the bottom of an article, bottom of a page, and it says, oh, seven tricks to get rid of cellulite, and you go, oh, I would love to do that. And those seven tricks are, um, uh, you know, win the genetic lottery and six other ones that were made up. So anyway, that's my first example of clickbait. So if anyone didn't have their hand up, hopefully now we all kind of know what clickbait is. Now, hands up, who thinks they wouldn't be fooled by clickbait? It's like literally one, two people. Okay, great. Awesome. I I'm glad you're really honest because I can actually guarantee that everybody in this room has been fooled by some clickbait. I'm sure you've all seen this. And in fact, I saw a piece of clickbait the other day that I thought was just so egregious. This was a, uh, an actual a title to a, an industry talk, not unlike this one, where the, the writer of the talk has really used a, just a catchy title with some hot topics to really try and trick people to come in and, and watch their talk. Let me show you what I'm talking about here. I mean, that is just, that is just egregious, <laughs> right? So, but I think we could all be tricked by clickbait, right? And, and we all do sometimes, and I think that's totally normal. So, so that's our first dark pattern of the day. Now, the next question I'm sure you have is, um, what, what am I doing here? Why am I the one talking about this? And, and I don't want this talk to be about me, but I do want to tell you just a few things about me so you understand why it's me giving this talk and not somebody far, far more qualified. So this is me. This is a great picture of me. Um, and I was a freelance designer for 10 very, 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 very long years, um, taking odd jobs and, and freelance jobs and, and working a lot of retail in the meantime and, and just trying to make ends meet. And I think a lot of us have either shared that experience in the past or are probably going through it right now. Um, I also worked at Apple and, and trained Apple staff in, in customer service and customer satisfaction, which was kind of my first start to, to really starting to understand um, UX and starting to understand how to, how to you know, really make customers happy. Um, against all odds, I, I now actually am gainfully employed as a, as a UX designer, and I'll tell you where in just a moment. You won't believe what it is. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, and just for something to talk about, now I, I come off as a very confident, loud, boisterous, annoying, frustrating, please go away kind of person, but I'm actually quite the introvert. So later, if you see me out in the halls, please talk to me about soccer or video games. It's my comfort zone. And also nobody at work will talk to me about them anymore. Um, so that would be great. Um, and lastly, as you can see, I'm, I'm still, still trying to rock the man bun. I do believe it will make a comeback. Um, you know, and, I, and, and I'm committed. <laughs> um, so there's three reasons why I'm here, okay? The first one is that uh, actually in the, in the last uh, 18 months or so, I've been doing a lot of writing, right? You know, medium.com and, and a few other sites have picked up some of my work. And a lot of the things I've been writing about are some of the same stuff we all write about, you know, UX patterns, UX design, UX tools. Um, but some of the stuff I've written that's actually caught a lot of traction is around uh, ethical design and particularly gambling in video games. That's my big passion topic. And in fact, I did enough writing about it that I've actually now done some other talks for some other companies and, and even appeared on the ABC talking about gambling in video games, right? And this is a really passionate topic for me because I love video games, but also I'm a bit worried about the effects of, of gambling products with our kids. And we're going to talk more about that later. You won't believe the outcome. But lastly, and most importantly, uh, is I work at a company called Tabcorp. Now, some of you may have heard of Tabcorp, but I guarantee you, you all actually do know what it is, um, because Tabcorp does a few different things. 
this is their logo, and this is a cool horse that I found and blurred out because I'm artistic. Now, Tabcorp does a bunch of different products. If you've ever placed a bet on a horse at the Melbourne Cup, for example, or ever bought a Taps Lotto ticket, you're actually a Tabcorp customer. And they're basically the biggest gambling and entertainment wagering company in Australia, and in fact, one of the biggest in the whole world, because Australia is, is almost, in every metric, the number one country for gambling participation, right? So this is a really, really big industry in Australia. And I had no idea about this when I actually applied for this job at Tabcorp. I didn't really know what they did. I didn't really engage with gambling. In fact, the only time I gambled was a few choice uh, wages on the 2010 World Cup, uh, which taught me a really valuable lesson, actually. It taught me that you never um, gamble on the Australian national team because they'll always disappoint you. And I really enjoyed relearning that lesson in 2014, 2018. I look forward to learning it again in 2022. Um, but the point is that you've actually all heard of Tabcorp, and this is why I want to give this talk, because when I first applied for Tabcorp, I had some really major concerns as a designer about what this job would actually entail. And first and foremost, I didn't know what the products were, right? I wasn't familiar with their products. I didn't know what I was making, and I didn't know a lot about gambling. So, and I'm sure you can all agree with this. You know, you'd really have to start thinking about, is this, is this an industry? Are these products that I actually want to be involved in? So I had to think a lot about that. I also had to think a lot about the people that I'd be working with. Now, I wanted an icon of someone just looking a little bit angry, but all I could find was like robbers and ninjas and stuff. So you're just going to have to imagine that we don't dress like that at work. But I was really worried that the people I would be working with didn't share my ethics or my morals, right? They didn't agree with where I stood when it came to gambling and gambling products and responsible design. So that was my second concern. And lastly, I was really worried about how will what I make affect my community, right? And this is something that we all have to think about. And some of us are lucky enough to have products that don't really have really deep, strong ramifications. But in the case of gambling products, obviously, it really, really does. There's a lot that goes on in this. So these were my three big main concerns. Now, I'm not here to shield Tabcorp. They don't uh, know what's in this talk. I have, um, I wouldn't exactly call it permission, uh, but, but they do know I'm here. But they haven't read this, and, and I'm basically, I've got a blank check to tell you whatever I want. So I hope that you'll trust me that this is, this is all coming from my heart. This is my actual honest opinion, um, and they didn't, they didn't pay me for any of this. But this is what I actually found out. So when I got there, the first lesson that I learned that um, I go into this interview, right, and these two guys, they start interviewing me, and, and I've got all these really hard questions, you know, I'm driving over in the car, I'm thinking about, oh, I'm going to ask this question, they'll have no answer, and I'll walk out the door, and I'll slam it behind me, and I'll go, no, sir, not today. But then I get in there, and actually, as it turns out, I'm the one being asked the hard questions. And what I realized was that these are the guys that are really passionate about working responsibly, because they have to be, right? Of course, there's the first, you know, corporate pessimistic thing of nobody wants to get in trouble, but then there's the other thing of, like, everybody wants to feel good about where they work. And so I'm getting asked all these really hard questions in my interview, and that made me realize that, actually, these products are built with a really high ethical standard. Secondly, um, as I started to learn and grow in this team, I learned that I'm actually working with some really cool people. This is not a particular team where everyone's super passionate about gambling and and, and wagering. These are just people like you and I. These are developers and designers and business and product and marketing and legal and regulatory. And they're all just like the people that you work with every day. And just like the people that I hope you work with every day, they don't want to harm their community either. And so that was a really nice lesson. And then lastly, um, the, the one that really surprised me more than absolutely anything else, right, is that our customers love our product. And that was something that I found really hard to understand at first because I'm not a gambling person. So when I tried to understand our customer, and they're going, oh, I love losing money in the lottery. I'm like, what are you talking about? But there's a certain mechanic and a certain thrill there that they actually really do enjoy. And, and that, that still means that you have to make it really, really responsible, but you also want to empower people to do the things that they enjoy. And if anybody's worked in um, the alcohol industry or anything like that, there's a, similar, there's a similar transaction there. If you don't drink and you work uh, for an alcoholic company, alcoholic company, an alcohol company, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, then, then you have to make a similar choice, right? So, so these are my big three lessons, and that's why I'm giving this talk today, because I am really passionate about people finding jobs that they, they love and that they enjoy. And 
If you had asked me two, three years ago if the job that I would love and enjoy was in the gambling industry, I would have said, no way, Jose, not after the 2010 World Cup. But now I've realized that, that this is a place that I actually do really like to go to. And so I hope that these lessons, these tips that I'm going to give you will also help you find your, uh, your, your ethical good point, you know, that nice creamy center where you feel good about the work that you do. So let's move on to my first tip of the day. Now these are not rules, these are tips because uh, I'm too young to be making rules. So awesome ethical design tip number one, the most important choice that any of us will ever make is where to work, right? And this is a really hard one for all of us because when you go to that first or second interview with a company, you really have no idea what to expect. Right? But as you start to work there and as you learn, you're going to discover what sort of a company it is and what sort of people are there. And the most important choice you can make is whether you want to contribute to that company or not. And so that's my number one tip is if you're not sure, think about the place you're working because that is what's going to define all the work that you do. Now, before we move on any further, I just want to describe what I feel is ethical design. This is my description, right? Design that respects the user's objective and gives them the appropriate information necessary to make intelligent, informed choices. And we're gonna hear the intelligent, informed choices bit a lot because that is what most products come down to. The customer is happiest when they're making intelligent, informed decisions that they understand the ramifications and the consequences of, right? And all the dark UX patterns that we'll look at today will share this in common. So that's my definition of ethical design. The other thing I just quickly wanna tell you about is the difference between morals which are our individual beliefs that we build over a lifetime of experience that are very different between two different people, and ethics, which is kind of more like this code of conduct that we set for ourselves, right? So our morals are like this perfect scenario of this is exactly the sort of person that I wanna be, but our ethics are closer to this is the line that I'm not gonna cross. I'm okay to waver on a few of these things, but I've got a point where I say I'm not doing this today. I think these two things are really important, and if you look at these two, uh, this one slide, and you don't exactly know what your morals and your ethics are, it's time to start thinking about it because in any design job in the world, it's going to be something that becomes really, really important as you start building customer-facing products. Okay, let's look at some naughty boys, shall we? So, this is a company called Fabletics, right? Has anybody heard of Fabletics? I hadn't until I did the research on this. One, two, three, awesome, five. Uh, so, great, so Fabletics did this thing, right? They're basically an athletic wear company, you know, the, the cool, like, trendy, like, um, you know, lycra yoga pants, you know, we've all got so many at home. And, uh, and, and they did this thing where if you buy a product from their website, they're gonna do this awesome thing for their customers. They're gonna sign you up for their premium service and it's absolutely free. You get a whole month of their premium service where they send you new offers and discounts on products and cool news about their range, right? But here's the really funny thing. Once that free trial is over, they just resub you. And the free trial is starting at 45 pounds a quarter and goes as high to 120 pounds per quarter. And they didn't tell their customers this at all, right? So if all these people, and in particular, you have children, right, teenagers, who are buying this wear off this website, and they're saying, Mum, can I just borrow your credit card? I want to buy a jumper. And the mum goes, yep, that's no problem, kiddo, no problem at all. And then a month later, that $20 jumper ends up costing them $65, $90, $180, you know, because they're automatically subscribed to this service. So what's the problem here? The problem is obviously that the customer didn't get to make an informed, intelligent choice. They didn't know, literally, what they were signing up for. So let's play a game because again, as we saw, we all love audience participation. So this is mandatory, everybody has to do this um, or else. So we're building subscription-based software, right? Just imagine we're building a subscription-based software. It could be something like, uh, you know, like say it's Netflix, right? So you're building this thing where people are gonna sign up and they, they get a free trial at first, 30-day free trial, great. I can try this product for free and see if I like it or not. But then after that, you're in this meeting with your product team, your business team, and they're going, okay, but what do we do after the 30-day trial, right? How do people keep going? Do we resubscribe them or not? Okay, here's our first option, right? We auto-renew all our customers and we don't even tell them we're doing it. We just go for it, right? Now, who thinks that's good UX? Get out of you. <laughs> who thinks it's bad UX? 
Okay, that's pretty good turnout. Okay, I agree. That's probably bad UX. Okay. Now, what about this one? An auto renewing subscription with one very, very small reminder. Think a little toast in the bottom in size 10 font that says, hey, we're going to resubscribe you. Who thinks that's good UX? Less than the last one. <laughs> Who thinks it's bad UX? Yeah, that's pretty bad UX, right? Okay, number three, auto-renewing subscription with lots of really, really loud reminders. So you're scrolling through this page, trying to get through your purchase and like pop-up after pop-up after big text message everywhere. It's going, hey, we're gonna resubscribe you. Keep an eye on your credit card because we're gonna charge it. Who thinks that's good UX? Okay, a couple. Who thinks it's bad UX? It's still kind of bad, right? Okay, and then lastly, this one should be an easy one for everybody, no automated subscription. Let the product talk for itself. If they like it, they'll come back and resubscribe themselves. We don't have to do that as a customer. Who thinks that's good, bad UX? Ah. Good UX. Good, good, good. Yeah, it's pretty good. But here's the interesting thing, right? When you try to put all these techniques into two buckets, good and bad, it's not that hard, but also like in that first one, everyone's like, yeah, bad UX, no, that's easy. Right? And then the second one, everyone's like, oh, yeah, it's probably bad UX. And then the third one, you're like, nah, nah it's still bad. And then the last one, you're like, ah, it's good. Because it actually isn't two buckets. There's no such thing as good and bad UX. There's just better and worse UX. So here's what it actually looks like, right? If we're going in this scenario, this is our very happy user with no automatic subs. This is an ideal state for a product that can really sell itself. But then we've got lots of reminders. That's kind of a, a runner-up prize, right? It's still an okay pattern, but it's not perfect. And then we've got just one little reminder. Well, that's pretty bad because a lot of people will miss it, but it's not as bad as auto-subbing uh, auto everybody and telling nobody, right? So it's shades of gray. And that's one really important thing that we need to recognize with design is that you can't just stuff these patterns into good and bad boxes because how you use it, the context in which you use it, and the product you use it with is gonna define whether it's a responsible or irresponsible thing to do. And to prove that point, Let's take all these subscription examples, and instead of doing software as a service like Netflix, let's do a medication subscription. So you go online and you order your insulin that you need every month, right? And it's gonna automatically subscribe you in some way. Well, if we do this activity with that, it's gonna look a little bit more like this. Suddenly, lots of reminders is the best pattern possible because I don't wanna forget to resubscribe to this service. Just one little reminder is an okay follow-up, right? That's okay, I, I, can, I can live with that. Auto-subbing me and not telling me? Well, I'd rather have had my choice but if it comes to my medication, that's a hell of a lot better than never being told, right? So it's now completely flipped on its head. So we have to think about, <laughs> forgot about that. So we have to think about the context of what we're building and, and who we're building it for and what their needs are, right? So this dark UX, dark design patterns, just, just take it out of your vocabulary. It's how you use it, not what you use. And here's my next tip. Design patterns don't have an agenda, but designers do. And that's the problem with Fabletics. The designer didn't use this evil pattern they made a bad choice with it. They decided that they were gonna automatically subscribe customers because the business wanted the money and they thought it was a worthwhile trade-off. As it turns out, it definitely wasn't because people were really, really mad, right? But that's not the pattern's fault because that pattern can be used responsibly. It's the designer's fault, it's the product manager's fault, it's whoever made that decision to do that particular mechanic that wasn't in the best interest of the customer and took away the customer's informed, intelligent choice. Let's have a look at another one. So, who here's used Google Maps? Great, who here uses Apple Maps? No. <laughs> okay, we might convert some people to Apple Maps today, in fairness. So this is Google Maps, we've all seen Google Maps before. Now, if you have a look at this picture, it's really big on this screen, so hopefully you can read it a little bit. There's something interesting going on here, right? The customer has searched for a smog check, okay? They wanna get a smog check. Now, I'll be honest, I have no idea what that is. But here's what's important. The first result is not the closest. Because the first result, the company that the first result is, has paid to have the top spot. 
Now, that's not that big a deal, right? I mean, it's a smog check for crying out loud. You're, you're probably just gonna choose it based on ratings or convenience or whatever, and that's not an urgent activity. So you're gonna have enough time to look at these results and figure out which one is the best fit for you. So this is not so bad until, what if it's an emergency room? So this is a scenario of an actual user, right? They have a medical emergency in their home and they jump on Google Maps and they go, I just need the nearest hospital right now. Now imagine your mindset in that moment, right? You're panicking, you're worried, you're stressed, and you go to this list and you are so used to the top result being geographically closest to you. So you look at that list and you go, yep, first one, no problem, no question, I just need the closest one. Well in this case, you've just added like 32 minutes to your trip, right? So this is a really extreme example, right? This is like life and death stuff potentially. And this isn't an evil design pattern, right? Selling the top results for search pages, we've been doing it for almost a decade now. It's not inherently evil. But someone somewhere in Google didn't necessarily think about the consequences of that system on every part of their user base. Because there's no problem doing this with a smog check. But there is a little bit of a problem doing it when it comes to something like emergency services. And so, not an evil pattern, not even an evil designer, just a bad choice. And to show you another not an evil pattern, not an evil designer, just a bad choice, Apple's App Store has this referral program, right? So from the day the App Store came out, if you wanted to uh, create a website and promote apps, right? So maybe you write reviews, maybe you write editorial content, but you want to promote apps, Apple will give you a kickback. So you put a link to the app at the bottom of your page. If somebody ends up buying that app, well, you get a little bit of money. Well, about a month ago, they discontinued that program. Now, they have every right to do that, right? Apple doesn't really need the referral program anymore. It's fair to say they're quite popular and people know about the App Store now. So that referral program for Apple didn't really serve much of a purpose. But there are all these websites now dropping like flies because that was 90% of their income model. Now, the problem here isn't that anybody made a bad choice. These guys who built these websites, they didn't do anything wrong. They're just using a service that was available to them. And Apple didn't do anything wrong. It's their referral program. They can do whatever they like to it. But they didn't think about the ramifications of the user, and likewise, the user didn't think about the ramifications of relying solely on the system they didn't have control in. So nobody did anything wrong, but nobody really thought about the consequences on either end, right? So this stuff is really gray, and it's kind of really hard to figure out who the bad guy is. And that brings me to my last tip. Next tip. I've got so many tips. So awesome ethical design tip number three. Designs have consequences, but they're all avoidable ones, okay? We can avoid them if we just think about how our systems are gonna be used. Now in that App Store example, that's impossibly hard, right? It's almost, what, 12, 13 years since the release of the App Store? Those guys had no idea what this thing was gonna turn into, so you've gotta give them a bit of fair game. But the guys who were building the website, well, they must have known that at some point that sole piece of revenue was maybe going to be modified or changed or that agreement was going to be different. So you've got to think about how these designs are going to work for you and your product. And this is really applicable to us from both sides, right? Because some of us are designing products, but I'm sure tons of us are building products that rely on a third-party service. Like how many people in here have a device that relies on Amazon Web Services or some sort of cloud-based service? And what happens if that just decides to shut down or break off one day? So we have to think about this and have to think about how our, how our designs, how our products are going to act if we don't have these services. So next topic, all right, big pivot. Hands up. Who trusts their computer? My hand's up, I trust my computer, yeah, okay, okay, few, yeah, that's pretty good. Okay, who doesn't trust their computer? Mm, okay, all right, keep your hand up, right, if you use an alarm on your phone. Yeah, yeah, now keep it up if you store, um, I don't know, fitness data or medical data. Use it for navigation, have your family details in there, online banking, are you sure you don't trust your computer? I wouldn't tell my mum that stuff, but I told my phone, no problem, okay? 
Now, I thought something was really funny in the, the keynote speaker earlier today, Lauren, right? So she said something really funny how she's so sick of seeing uh, you know, people like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg being quoted in all these talks by middle-aged white men. <laughs> well, <laughs> Lauren, she's not in here, right? Okay, let's look at some quotes from uh, Elon Musk. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That 15 minute break just, just wasn't long enough for me to switch these out. Okay, but I'm just gonna pretend that these are still super, super relevant because they are, right? These are our experts, right? Ironically, middle-aged white men are our experts when it comes to things like cybersecurity, artificial intelligence. So what do we do, right? Because I don't know, I don't understand how AI works. I barely understand how my phone works. Sometimes I forget my pin code for crying out loud. But these guys, these guys built the damn thing so they should know what responsible and irresponsible design is, what we should be worried about. But then you've got these two titans of industry, right? And you've got Elon Musk on one hand and he says, AI is the biggest threat to humanity ever, right? And that's a, that's a verbatim quote. And then you've got Mark Zuckerberg who says, we're gonna take all this data on Facebook and let AI figure it out. Wow, like those are really different approaches. So who do you trust, right? Well, I'm not sure. But let's have a look at an example of some AI growing, and, and, and a lot of you will have seen this, so forgive me if you have, but I think it's fun to watch it again. You guys seen that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that is crazy, right? Like what you're actually watching there, if you really think it through, and a lot of UX people, as soon as this video came out, started to really think it through and write about it, is you've got an AI that is successfully imitating a human being to the point of tricking another human being into thinking they're talking about another human being. Yeah, I'm sure that made sense. So, so this is something that we really have to think about, right? But, but of course, in the context of booking a haircut, who cares? It's just a haircut, it's fine. That hairdresser, other than maybe a little bit of embarrassment, is probably not going to be that stressed that she was talking to a robot the whole time. But, but what if they took this technology and it could call your bank and make a withdrawal? Or um, what if it could call uh, your kid's school and, and change their um, syllabus or itinerary, right? What if it could you know, call your mum on her birthday and wish her happy birthday because you forgot? Uh, actually, no, that one's okay. But the point is, <laughs> the point is that this is a system, right, that everyone's building now, right, AI. Everyone is building it, everyone's working on it. But we have to start thinking about the ramifications now, we're gonna get in really big trouble later. And the problem with what Google showed is not that this AI is super smart and can trick people and stuff like that, that's not the problem. AI that can impersonate human beings is inevitable, it's going to happen. But the problem is that the user on the other end didn't know it was a robot, so they couldn't make an intelligent, informed decision, right? Through line for the whole thing. Okay, who's heard of loot boxes? Okay, about half. Don't worry, I'm going to explain it. I thought everybody knew about this, but it turns out it's just the nerds. So anyway, so a loot box, right, is basically you go into a game, right, a video game, and you go, man, all these cool guns are in this game, and I want the coolest gun. And what gaming companies have done, instead of saying like, oh, you have to play X amount to, to earn the gun, they just say like, that's okay, kid, give us three bucks, and you have a random chance of earning the gun. If anybody's ever bought any of these two products, that's a loot box, right? So Kinder Surprise, you look at the back of a Kinder Surprise box and you go, ah, oh, there's a bicycle, there's a little monster, there's a ghost, and you go, I really want the ghost. So you buy a Kinder Surprise and you get the bicycle, and then you buy a Kinder Surprise and you get the bicycle, and you buy a Kinder Surprise and you get the bicycle. And eventually you either stop buying Kinder Surprises or you become a Kinder Surprise aficionado and, and get, your, get your ghost or your bicycle or whatever. Anyway, point is, 
These are the same systems. But there's a big difference between this and loot boxes, okay? Firstly, when you're buying like AFL collectible card game, right, everybody understands what that is because they've been around forever. And usually, it's either adults buying them or parents buying them for their kids. So there's an opportunity there to educate the child on what is actually happening there. If the kid says, I want my favorite player, mum can go, well, you definitely won't get him, right? So that's a big, big difference. Here's what a loot box actually looks like in a game. Anyone want to buy one now, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so obviously, like, there's this, there's this mechanic with loot boxes, right, that they're really exciting and really fun to open. And the problem is, this is the loot, right? So I'm a 14-year-old I'm a kid. My mum has registered her credit card on my phone so I can make purchases if I want to. And sure, she's going to see the receipt at some point, but that's a consequence for me later, not me now. So I'm going to go ahead and try and do this, right? So I buy a loot box. Okay, nothing wrong with that, kind of. You know, it's a transaction. We get that, whatever. And now I'm hoping for the thing that I want, right? But here's the problem. This is not an equal chance. If there's 10 items in that loot box, it's not like a one in 10 chance. It's like a one in six trillion chance for the thing I want. So I don't get it, right? And then I buy another loot box and I hope for the thing I want and I don't get it and blah, blah, blah. And I'm literally describing gambling. We all understand this, right? So this is the problem. So let's look at what we can do. What can we actually do to, to change the way that these mechanics work, right? Because adults understand them and kids don't. Activity. So randomized items with the best items being extremely rare. Who thinks that's good UX? Who thinks that's bad UX? Who thinks it's just shitty product design? <laughs> yeah, kind of is. What about if uh, it's randomized, but everything has an equal chance? So the best item and the worst item have the exact same chance of coming up. Good design? Bad design? My hand's tired? Yeah. Okay, who thinks that equal chance for everything and no duplicates is better, right? Think about that collectible card thing that I talked about or the Kinder Surprise. What if I could only get the bike once and there are eight items, and I get the bike, and now it's a one in seven chance. And then I get the ghost, and now it's a one in six chance. Who thinks that's good design? Bad design? Half and half, right? And then lastly, directly buying the exact thing you want with no random mechanic. <laughs> good design? Bad design? Yeah, I think we all agree that shopping's an okay design. Um, <laughs> so, now, I'm sure you're wondering, what do all of these things that we've just talked about have in common? It's a great question. Here's what they have in common. So. Paying for modified search results, artificial intelligence imitating human beings, and gambling mechanics aimed at children with hidden odds, what do they all have in common? Tip number four, the user should always have enough information to make informed, intelligent choices. That is so important. And that's what's happening with all three of those things. That hairdresser did not know she was talking to an AI, so cannot act appropriately. That second example also had a thing of that. And that third example also had a thing of that, right? I mean, seriously, look at these. It's just, it's just, how can anyone make a good choice with these three scenarios? They can't, so that's my point. Okay, now, I'm sure you're uh, all very excited about more audience participation. So, who here has a Twitter account? Cool, okay. Now, this audience participation is a thinking exercise. Ooh. Okay, so, you're the CEO of Twitter, right? His name's Jack Dorsey, that's not important. You are the CEO of Twitter. Congratulations, we're very excited to have you on board. But also, it's 18 years ago, so you're just having this little idea of like, oh my God, I'm gonna create this social platform, people can only use so many characters, it's gonna be so cool and I love it, oh my God, right? And here's what happened, right? Here's what happened to the actual people of Twitter, is within the space of 10 years, they grew from having 30 million users to 336 million users, right? 
Now, that's not that big a deal, but what does happen when you grow with that sort of velocity is you start with people who are really engaged with your product and understand what it's for, responsible social interaction, right? But then as you get into that peak area, you start to get what we call bad actors, right? You start to get users that use it for hate speech and sexism and, and saying mean things and posting yucky photos and so on and so forth, right? So you get all these users doing the wrong thing on your platform. Now, you're all the CEOs of Twitter, again, congratulations. So what do you do, right? Well, I think what most of us would do is put out some sort of statement or set of rules or end user license agreement that says, hey, no hate speech, right? Who would do that? I'd do it. Who wouldn't do that? Yeah. Ah, yes, that's a great point. I'll get to that in a minute. So what he said, by the way, was how do you define hate speech? It's a very good point. And that's what they're dealing with right now. But there's an even bigger problem than that, right? Because it's not just what are people saying, it's, it's also who are they coming from? Because it's really easy to ban John with 17 followers from Minnesota and, and he's not a big deal, right? But it's a lot harder to ban this guy, right? <laughs> because you're an American company, how do you ban your own president, right? Well, of course, a lot of people, including myself, would just say, well, don't worry about that, just do it because it's the right thing to do. But now we're all the CEOs of Twitter and suddenly that decision becomes a lot harder. The other problem is, is how do you define hate speech, right? So we all probably have similar ethics because we're all at this conference and we all have some similar values, but some of us are going to have very different lines on where hate speech is. And the problem is that Twitter is a really big company, right? So they also have a ton of, ton of people who all have these really different lines about what their hate speech is versus someone else's hate speech and, and so on and so forth. And generally speaking, it'd be really hard to come to a shared agreement of what good behavior and bad behavior is. Now, some people solve this by user moderation, right? But Twitter's way too big to be doing that because you'll get so many users who aren't moderating it properly and are just banning things that shouldn't be banned. Facebook deals with the same problem. So what do you do? It's a great question. Let's look at another one. Who's heard of Cambridge Analytica? Yeah? Most of us, yeah, cool. So Cambridge Analytica, right, is this big research firm, or at least it was, right? And what they did is basically just research on, on users in social media fields to try and understand political alignments, right? But then what they did is they, they released an app, basically, and that app pulled a bunch of data from users without telling them, and then they used that data to tell Facebook who to advertise political campaigns to. So they basically tried to essentially rig an election through social media manipulation. They got caught, they got in really, really big trouble, and now that company is no more. What I find really interesting about Cambridge Analytica, and I don't have a point here, it's just something to think about, is I guarantee you there were product designers, business people, UX designers, service designers, people like us in those rooms making those decisions to make that product at that point. And I also guarantee you they weren't bad people, they just made bad choices. And that's why we have to be so on top of this. Has anyone heard of Uber? Yeah, it's like a little startup, you'll, you'll, you'll see it eventually, it's getting big. So Uber had this service called Grayball. Who's heard of Grayball? Okay, a few people, that's pretty good. So, so basically what Grayball was is this piece of software that Uber built, right? And what Grayball would do is it would track different customers and try to identify customers breaking Uber's terms of service, right? Now that's totally innocent. In fact, that's really proactive, right? That's a good thing, you're trying to get bad people off your platform. But then some genius at Grayball decides like, hey, couldn't we use this to figure out who is a government regulator and then stop government regulators from booking rides or inform our users that they're going to be in a governmentally regulated ride so our, rider, uh, our drivers could act in their best behavior? Now, that's all kind of gray, but it's actually completely avoiding government regulation, which is a really, 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 really big problem, right? And they got caught and they got in big, big trouble. And again, nobody was really trying to do anything evil, but at some point, someone in that meeting, probably marketing, said, hey, why don't we try and avoid government regulation? And the UX designer in the room was like, mm, oh, I can't be bothered, it's fine, right? So we can't let go of this stuff. It's really important that we pay a lot of attention. And that brings me to my next tip. It's not enough to build an ethical product. Twitter, when it was built, was an ethical product. Uber, yep. 
And uh, <laughs> Cambridge Analytica absolutely was an ethical product when it got built. But eventually at some point there was a turning point in those products that led them to make decisions that weren't in the best interests of their customers. And we have to be alert for those because right now most of us will probably put our hands up and say, yes, the product I build is ethical. But it doesn't mean that it will always will be. And if you don't pay attention and if you're not proactive about keeping it that way, then you're going to lose your way. So that's really important. And in fact, it's so important that I have awesome ethical design tip 5.5. We all influence the products we create. It doesn't matter what role you're in, as soon as you're engaged with a product, you have the ability to influence the future. And this is something that, as I've given talks similar to this, it's the number one question I get is, I'm just a junior designer, I'm just a data analyst, I'm just a customer service representative. I don't have any agency in directing the direction of this product. I don't buy it. You have less, but you don't ever have none because you have a voice and you can speak up and you can say that this isn't okay. And maybe that won't work. Right? I, I totally buy that. I'm sure that there was probably someone in that uber gray ball meeting that said, hey, we really shouldn't avoid government regulation. And they said, shut up, Tim, you're fired. Right? But the point is that Tim feels really good that he said it and probably got a job somewhere else where he feels much happier with himself. And I guarantee you, if you don't take the opportunity to try and guide your product in the right direction and it goes down the wrong direction, you will regret it forever or at least a really long time. One more thing I want to talk about. So a lot of the products that we've talked about today, we've talked about clickbait, artificial intelligence, Google Maps, Facebook, Twitter, blah, 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 blah. A lot of them have one thing in common. They're all free services, right? The user does not pay upfront. Now, some of the stuff we looked at, they did. But a lot of these are either no upfront cost or one very small upfront cost. But just because they don't cost money, it doesn't mean that they're free. And in fact, they're not free. In this case, when a user, uh, sorry, when a company says free, what they actually mean is, please pay me delicious, delicious data, right? And our data now is starting to have really, really significant uh, value. And they use this data in two different ways. So firstly, uh, they decide, we're not going to tell the customer how we're going to use their data, or how we're going to use it, or how we're going to take it. And if we get caught, we'll apologize, right? And that's been the model for a really long time. That's what Facebook got caught out doing. And now they're kind of turning that around, and they're going to method number two, which is, well, we told the customer what we were going to use, but then we did it for something else, right? And so that's essentially what Uber did. Uber was tracking all this data and saying, we're just using it to, to pull out those people who are against our terms of service. But then they turned around and used it for something else, which is really dodgy. And the point here is that those customers who are giving away their data, if they don't know what it's being used for, then I guess that would mean that they can't make an informed, intelligent choice, right? Because they're giving away a currency that they have. So they should know what they're getting back for that. Brings me to my last design tip. The transactions between the customer and the business should be equitable for both parties. My product manager will be so proud to have a sentence that formal in one of my presentations. I'm, I'm really pumped about it. But, but this is really true. If you're trading something with the customer, right, whether it's their data or their time or their eyes or their clicks or their money, it should be equitable for both parties. And there's two reasons for this. Firstly, from a business perspective, if that trade-off isn't equitable, eventually customers will stop making the trade, right? Because customers are smart, users are smart, and they'll realize that they're not getting back what they're putting in. But secondly, Secondly, for the customer, this is how we build trust, right? If, if we're giving a good trade to someone, that's how you build trust. I mean, who's ever bought something off Gumtree and it shows up, you know, beaten and broken and, and, you know, not how it was described or eBay or whatever, right? You're never going to go back to that seller. It doesn't matter if it's an individual seller or a huge multinational company. If it's not what was advertised, if it's not what we said it would be, then customers won't trust us. And we live off trust as product designers. We live off it. Okay. So, in conclusion, the most important choice that we make is for any of us to work. Design patterns don't have an agenda, but designers definitely do. Designs have consequences, but they're avoidable ones. The user should always, always have enough information to make an informed, intelligent choice. And please, if you take any of these away, take that one away. 
It's not enough to build an ethical product. You have to maintain an ethical product. And the transaction between the customer and the business should always, 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 always be ethical, uh, sorry, be equitable for both parties, okay? Really important. Now, before I leave you, I just wanna say again, thank you very much for coming to this talk. I know you had uh, better options. Uh, but I wanna leave you on something a little bit more personal. I think I still have a little bit of time to do that. Yeah, yeah great, okay. Five minutes, perfect, okay. I'll be really quick about this. When I first joined Tabcorp, I was a little bit worried about um, what I would be doing, right? I was really worried. I told you about all those concerns I had and et cetera, et cetera. But I did join and I took the job because I was really impressed by the interview and it felt like a good ethical fit for me. But I remember about two weeks in, I realized that I have a lot of agency in this business and if I decide to make bad choices, they might actually happen. Like I could put bad products out if I wanted to and thank God I don't, but, but, but that's just me. And I don't know everyone in this huge, enormous conglomerate, right? So, so what do I do? And I went to my boss and I said, boss, I don't know how you do this. I don't know how we all make sure that we make responsible products that do the right thing, that treat our customers well, that are ethically sound and morally sound. I, I don't know how we do this, not just in a gambling context, but in general, as kind of having this existential crisis of like, oh my God, this is a really big responsibility. And he made a really good point to me, and I want to repeat that to you, and that's this. If he was the only one, my boss, if he was the only one making sure that everything we did was was on the up, right, everything was ethical, everything was responsible, then eventually something would fall through the cracks because that's just how it is in a, in a big corporation. You can't keep an eye on everything. And so then what you start to do is you start to hire people who you know will reflect those values, right? And you, when you think about product design, it's a link in a chain, right? So I'm a designer and I'm somewhere in the middle and then before that you've got research and before that you've got customer insights and then after that you've got marketing, legal, regulatory, business approval, sales, etc. right? So there's this big long link of people. And so if I can hire links in that chain that are responsible, then I'm creating these gates where an irresponsible product won't get through. And so in most companies, we're really, really lucky if one or two or three or four of those links are gates that we can trust to not get a responsible product through. As it turns out, in my business, we have to make sure that every link in that chain is really responsible. And so that is my closing point to you. In anything you do, in every place you work, you don't have to be the person who's doing the hiring, you don't have to be the person who's managing the team, but make sure that you, firstly, are a responsible link in that chain, and then look at those links next to you and make sure that they reflect your values too. Because if you can do that, and everyone along that chain does that, you're going to build ethically sound products. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this presentation from UX Australia 2018. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.